You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Yay, in unison. <laughs> How good is that? Yeah. Good yeah. morning, everyone. Good morning, Alice. And, uh, good morning, Judith. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Judith. <laughs> yeah. What a beautiful morning. Um, it's really glorious out there, isn't it? <laughs> no, look, I just have to say, I did love, I did love the sound of the rain. <laughs> That's right. Waking up That's to right. the rain. Not so no, much. Not so last night, I'm sure, before you went to bed, it's always good, you know, when you go to sleep with the sound yeah, of the rain. Yeah, it's, it is. It's quite lovely. But yeah, getting out, and it's, uh, that's another matter. It yeah. is, it is. Yeah. And yeah. it's um, interesting because I was looking at the uh, Melbourne weather for Monday and it said, oh, very high chance of rain. Well, that's happened. Um, <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, most likely during the morning and a little bit early in the afternoon with some heavy fall, so they expect around 25 millimetres today, and the chance of hail and thunder in the uh, morning, so winds of up to 50 k's and decreasing later in the evening with a top of 11 and a low of 7. Wow. And then tomorrow we'll have more rain. With more rain. High of 12 okay. and a low of 8. And that's uh, Monday, June the 3rd, 2019. That's the, mm. the weather outlook. Takes mm-hmm. time for people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just beyond 7, a little after 7 now. And uh, a big thanks to Beyond Zero Emissions for another fascinating show. It's always such a good show. Latest scientific research, insights into the global warming crisis, and, uh, yeah, great work. Yeah, yeah. And it goes out nationally, which is nice, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, I'm wondering what people got up to on the weekend, Alice. Did you, were you doing some good things? I went to the um, protest against the criminalisation of abortion in the US mm. at the State Library on Saturday. So, we're going to be hearing a little bit more from that later. But, yeah, yeah. I spent my Saturday afternoon at the State Library with yeah. the protesters. That's huge. That's such yeah. a big issue yeah. right now that's happening there. Yeah, and great that... People got out in solidarity. In solidarity, yeah. yeah. And we heard from speakers um, from Ireland and from oh, yeah. the US, Australia, um, because I didn't realise, but I think Australia has its own relationship with mm. That's um, right. yes. reproductive rights. Yep. So, uh, yeah, we heard a lot more about that as well, which was yeah fascinating so sure and it's state-based legislation yeah exactly so it varies depending on which state Mm -hmm. you're in yeah and that's coming up um later in the show yeah Yeah, that's coming up later and uh, also after eight we'll be speaking with amanda keddy professor amanda keddy from deakin university and she's going to be talking about an article that she's written with a colleague deb ollis 
on introducing um, safe relation or positive relationships in schools as a way to counter some of the things we've been seeing and hearing about violence against women. So that yeah. should be interesting. And then before for that, we're um, just before eight, quarter to eight, we're going to hear from Professor David Loy, who's um, both um, uh, he's, he's studied his area is Buddhist and comparative philosophies. But he's also a Zen practitioner, many years, over 20 years in Japan, and a teacher. And he's written a new book called Eco Dharma, and um, about you know the I guess engagement of Buddhism and eco, um, environmental activism. So that's going to be uh, interesting to hear <laughs> from him. So yeah. might, you might have to add another little. I think is it uh, sleep when tired, eat when hungry, and then there has to be a third one to do with the environment. I think there. That's exactly. <laughs> I think you've got it, Dean. Yeah. Wow, I think that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, eat when hungry, protest when needed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. And uh, also we're going to be speaking with Dr. Um, Zora Simic because she's done a review of a book that came out this year called, and I've got it here for everybody, I'll just do a Philip Adams, I'm holding it up right yeah. to the light for everyone to see, called the hashtag Me Too Stories from the Australian Movement, and she's done a review of that for Australian Book Review. So I'll be, as a person, you know, historian who studies, um, you know, uh, uh, feminism and feminist um, arguments and protests over the years. I think she's going to have a, a really useful. Yeah, what yeah, a great. Take. Yeah, what a great guest. Yeah, and um, at seven thirty we'll be speaking to Alistair Baston. I think um, Lisa might be a bit busy this morning, and this is in regards to a parking a parking proposal which is off track out. In Darabin, there's been a Darabin Council proposal which would create new two-hour parking restrictions in streets um, within the uh, Fairfield, uh, Preston, Thornbury, Northcote area. And as a resident of that area, I didn't didn't even know it was happening, and I read the local paper religiously well, just because of that. I yeah, did, I, I'm a local resident, but yeah. I, did, I did know actually. Okay, you yeah, that, but I'm, I'm now I can't remember where on earth I I did discover mm. it. Mm. But uh, but I think it sounds like though, Dean, from what you're saying, it's not that well known. No, no, mm. I mean, I, so what's the what's the background on that? Then I'm not I'm not familiar with the well, plan. Well, there's controversial plans. To, well. For the council, they're not controversial, but they want to ban free all-day street parking in parts of, of suburbs. So essentially, I know where I live, a lot of people park their cars there all day and then they catch a tram. It doesn't affect me, but mm. I know some people in my street complain about it. And we've chatted about it, but when I my issue is when I lived in Richmond, years ago, the same thing happened where they said, you know, look, we'll introduce two-hour parking and then within like two and a half years you had to then buy a permit which was starting at like twenty dollars by the time i left the yearly permit had gone up to 150 dollars that you as a resident wow. and a homeowner ends up has to pay mm. having to pay Another so it's a cost. bit like a a yeah. cash grab the revenue raising yeah. thing in edge, edge, mm. edge of the wedge yeah, <laughs> yeah. The wedge. but and then there's people you know who what about when you've got a babysitter coming all day to babysit for you because you're at work and there's yes. two-hour parking restrictions. Yes. Just, yeah, so things like that mm. would affect a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, I, I know when I noticed, I thought, oh, there's something not totally comfortable about some, yeah, about this, so I'm really... Yeah, well, the councils um, come out and said, you know, give us your views, and it was meant to be from somewhere like the 30th of May till the 6th of June, um, your, your say at, at, at Darabin, but 
as I said, n- everyone that I was speaking to yesterday have been to two kids' parties over the weekend. Ah, um, that's where you get all the information. No one knew about it. And these are people who send their kids to local schools, have houses in the local areas, right. and it's like, oh, well... We'll be directly affected been. by it. Yeah, yeah. so hopefully, um, you know, we'll hear why some of these residents have banded together and formed this group called Neighbours Against the Darabin mm. Parking Strategy. Mm. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm really interested to hear what people have to say because, I, as I said, I got wind of it. But I thought, no, what are the implications? There's a, yeah, there's a lot. Um, yeah. And today is the final day of Reconciliation Week. I know we were trying to get um, the Treaty Commissioner on, but yeah. she's she's really busy, so hopefully we can try and organise a time and get a bit of an update as to what's happening with the Treaty in Victoria at some stage next week. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, maybe get a report on how the Reconciliation Week has been for yeah. Indigenous so that Australians. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, yeah for sure. And uh, yes, also relating to news, last week um, we spoke to um, Professor Samantha Hepburn. You might remember about Adani and you know what mm. she wrote in the paper, what stands in the way. Yeah. And one of the things that has that did stand in the way then, but not anymore, and she d- is the, the black-throated finch conservation plan. And she talked about the bird as a little warrior, which was kind of. Wonderful. Anyway, it's gone through now. Uh, uh, Adani has kind of updated it and mm. uh, and added things. And you know, there's some quotes uh, in one of the articles I read about how useful those things will be that they've mm. added to it. But anyway, over the weekend, a number of scientists who were involved in um, moni- the research involves monitoring the plan the, for the the um, black throated finch, and they're saying it, it's a hurried add-on with no proof that the threat posed to the finch can actually be solved and an extinction averted. So this is incredibly sad news, and I think we'll put the paper up on our website because, um, yeah, it's a really interesting yeah. discussion of that. Which effectively means that um, Adani now is only just one step away from mm, starting construction. That's right, yeah. and, and the worry is, will people, will the Queensland government or their Department of Environment mm. do the same rush job on the groundwater as it seems that they've done on the Black Throat? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful little bird, actually. Look, do look it up, and you can actually hear its sound as well if you go onto the website. And yeah. yeah, so... Um, well, the positive, positive news coming yeah, out of the UK <laughs> regarding, <laughs> regarding energy and whatnot, um, they spent two weeks coal-free in the last, yeah, the last two weeks have been completely coal free in the Yay. UK. So that that's a good, good step. Thank you, yeah, Alice. yeah, some nice news coming <laughs> from Yay. that way. We don't get much, but occasionally. You it's prob- it's, it's probably here. because everyone's distracted by the cricket. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Well, I think we're going to start off with some music this morning and um, Place of Dreams. Place of Dreams, yeah. Lost in a place of dreams, I heard them call. Cross to live your dreams if you want them all. I'll pay the cost and I gain it all for one more. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. 
Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. some great music to start us off on a rainy Monday morning. So the, the most recent one there was um, In My Kitchen, uh, Inside My Kitchen by Tiddas. And uh, before that, we heard uh, Place of Dreams with Birds and Neck of Vandal. So, yeah, beautiful music to get us started. And it's time now to go to our first guest. I um, woke up uh, last Wednesday to the uh, Preston Leader newspaper, which had a parking proposal um, off-track announcement that was on the front page talking about a plan to remove all-day parking from residential streets. Um, and I guess recently that, that wave of anger over the controversial plans to ban the free all-day parking in parts of Melbourne has um, you know, got residents banding together and there has been a, a group formed called Neighbours Against the Darabin Parking Strategies who are opposing these plans to ban the free all-day street parking in parts of um, Northgate, Thornbury, Preston, Elphington and Fairfield. But to find out a little bit more about um, this campaign from Neighbours Against the Darabin Parking Strategy, we are joined by Alistair Baston. Good morning, Alistair. Good morning, Dean. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us on uh, 3CR Monday Breakfast. Um, as I mentioned, I, woke, I was reading the local paper, which I read religiously, um, and what I noticed was that I, as a resident of the Darwin Council living just off Regent Street, was not even aware of this uh, parking strategy. Can you tell us what prompted you to form this group? Yeah, awareness is a, is a, is a fundamental thing of this, that... What prompted us was we got a letter in the letterbox, well, not even a letter, it's a flyer, on the Monday after an election, and it just didn't really look like much. And it was very sort of nuanced, but didn't really describe what was actually going on until you dig deeper and start stitching two or three other policy documents together, and you start to see, hang on a second, 
this means that I won't be able to park outside my house. And what was troubling about that particularly was that what raised the antenna in our area is that we have no parking problem. It just isn't a thing, even though we're only a few hundred metres from the um, Greensboro line. So it seemed that there was a radical proposal to heavily regulate uh, the you know, menial aspects of our lives where there was actually no problem to solve. Now, I appreciate that there is a problem in some areas, but they've taken a one-size-fits-all approach for a very large part of Darabin, which seems to be, with two things about it, largely unnecessary and a little bit on the sneaky side, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I did read, uh, once I looked into this, that you know their main reason for having this parking strategy is that population is expected to increase by 39%. Um, and, and essentially, they do not currently have a parking strategy and they sort of claim, the council claims that it's an opportunity to become leaders to create efficient and transparent systems, which, you know, the way they're going about it isn't efficient and transparent. No, neither of those things. And and I think that really what they've got it the wrong way around. So yes, the population is growing, but car use per capita is decreasing. For all we know, the uh, autonomous vehicles on the horizon will um, resolve this problem anyway. But the, the what I think we we ought to have happened was if you're going to introduce a a sophisticated parking strategy, and I don't think this is one, you need to do it in concert with public transport strategies, with state government strategies, mm. and trying to um, stop commuters parking at car parks, which is a central part of this. So they don't want commuters to park, for example, at Fairfield Station and ride which is completely at odds with the state government policy of park and arrive. Mm, mm, because I, I noticed that those proposed extent of new parking restrictions seem to all be around all the houses around the train stations, which sort of you know defeats that purpose because they've just spent money upgrading Regent train station, they're upgrading Reservoir train station, um, and then a lot of people will obviously be parking around there. Um, and there is that sort of idea of one size fits all. Um, where do you think that the biggest problem has been? Because I noticed um, there were signatures almost every 10 seconds on the Facebook page, and now there's over you know 2,000 signatures on that um, Facebook group. So I think the, there's been a really rapid rise, and I didn't expect to be in this last Monday, but it's taken over most of my week. It, it's there's a, as the awareness grows, people discover that there's a problem being solved that they didn't have. But there are some that do struggle with parking, and there has been, whilst there hasn't been a uh, Darabin-wide policy, there's definitely been an approach, which is to um, sound out the residents of a street of an affected area and work out what might work to um, help them with their parking issues. But so our strong message to council, which they reassure us they're listening to, but we get to see them adopt our strong message is you need to have tailored solutions. You need to see what the situation is in the area and then respond to that. Because many of our members of our Facebook group are posting pictures of empty streets mm. saying, where is the problem? Why, why are you going to stop me from parking outside my house when there is no problem parking yet? There at all. And charge me what is purported to be $40 each for two visitor parking permits 
um, that I was reading yesterday. I mean, essentially, if you've got children and you're at work and you need a babysitter to come to your house or you have visitors that are coming to visit you, it then creates a whole new set of problems for especially older residents who've been living there who have never had a problem or people who are just, you know, living their day-to-day life to all of a sudden have a two-hour parking permit in front of the house. just doesn't seem to make sense. It's quite discriminatory both on visitors and carers too. Mm. So you, you may be able to get a carer's permit, but it's tied to a particular vehicle registration. And neighbours of mine that have carers uh, assisting them in their lives, they have multiple carers. Um, and to have the idea of one visitor's permit, you know, that's, that's the death of you know, any social gathering. And, and these, as, as I've researched, it appears to apply as much on Christmas Day as any other day. Mm. Which means that you won't be hosting Christmas in Durban. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, yeah, it's a whole year round. And I noticed also in that strategy, one of their, their their objectives, one of their six objectives, the fourth one was, and I keep harping back on this, and this is what really got me to want to talk to you guys. We will collect data and make decisions based on evidence. Um, so I guess the evidence, and, and I've just had a quick look now on um, the Herald Sun. It's reporting that the whole strategy. Um, might be over before it even begins because of the 3,000 signatures that you've already got. Well, we, we hope so, but those they've got a lot of rules about petitions and it seems that our change.org won't meet their standards because the, the signature doesn't include an address. But uh, we, we'd advise the uh, council to uh, acknowledge at least the numbers of outraged people. But the what will make a difference is how many... So one councillor, Mr Greco, has gone out on a limb um, and said he will pass a motion or move, make a motion that the policy be withdrawn and we start again with proper and thorough consultation. He has been now joined verbally by two, I think maybe three others. Mm, Trent McCarthy, Kim Lesseff and Lena Messina, I think. That's right. Um, but, of course, those position statements by social media are not a vote. Mm. And we won't know until next Tuesday where the vote lies. So there has been a very vocal opposition to this. Um, a number of the councils are keeping their position to themselves. Um, but it's not until we see a meeting on um, Tuesday as to what comes out of that. We do have our, we have organised our own town hall meeting mm. um, this Tuesday night at Welcome to Thornbury. Uh, 7pm. It is not actually a town hall meeting because it's not at a town hall mm. because until we'd already organised this meeting, we had no approach from council at all to express an interest in any sort of open forum discussion. And, and I did see that. Um, I think, and this is where that whole message, and you've got the GoFundMe and you've also got the, um, the, the petition there online. It is very, very important. So it's on tomorrow from 9 o'clock till 8.30 at Welcome uh, to Thought. 7, PM. sorry. Yep, from yeah. 7 p.m. And we'll p.m. try to keep the meeting to about an hour and mm. then let people you know, meet and commune and maybe have a have a meal together. Because one, one of the best things that's come out of this, Dean, is that I've been real, I've met some wonderful people who are really committed to their neighbourhoods, who mm. love living in Darabin. And um, in that perverse way that community activism results, you know, there are some friendships that have come out of this and some renewed relationships across the broad Darabin community. And the idea behind having a strategy which is, a, I guess, a blanket proposal which does not suit all the residents and has not been debated is ludicrous, really. Look, it is. And, and there's a fair bit of spin in that paper, uh, the proposal, and 
yeah, they do even talk about connectedness, and yet it actually has the opposite effect. It um, isolates disabled people who may not be able to get out of their house. Um, it restricts social interaction, um, and and it pits neighbour against neighbour because of some as yet to be clearly articulated rules about who might be entitled to park um, outside their house, and it's is not entirely clear. And, and of course, you may have two people in very similar circumstances with quite different application of the rule. Mm, mm. And I think more importantly, we, we all understand that, yeah, the, the population is growing. You know, when, when I moved in there 10 years ago, it's changed a lot, even in the last 10 years with developments and things like that. But the idea is we should... As as residents, we should all be aware, and then everybody can make that decision. I, I understand, obviously, it's that weird corridor where the train stations are, but effectively, it's going to affect everybody who lives around those areas. Well, that's right, because you you regulate a particular zone, and then the the next street across is outside that zone, and that becomes the parking lot. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, and, and safety, of course, there's a number of things which they put forward in their proposal which are, in fact have the opposite results. So they identify safety as the number one outcome for all their streams of activity centres to which this regulation applies. But well, they're stopping people from parking and riding so that shift workers who come home at night, young women who have been out socialising, um, they can't drive home from the station, I have to walk home in the dark. Mm. And that's the other aspect of them having this the wrong way around because you need to build the pedestrian safety infrastructure before you tell pedestrians they, they have, before you tell people they've got to walk home in the dark at night. And so this uh, community meeting of residents obviously is on tomorrow, as we, as we mentioned. What do you, as, as a final question, what do you hope the likely outcome would be from it tomorrow? Yeah, so we... I understand that town hall meetings with someone at the front with a microphone and a, and a crowd before them don't really work well. They can tend to lead to um, frustration, anger, not productive. So out of tomorrow, we we want to get people together and work in streams in different categories and try and sort of crowdsource, not just community support, of which most people there will, will have, but actually practical applications of how can we affect change, how can we communicate clearly with council, how can we advocate for disability rights, um, how can we uh, uh, connect with our state and local and federal members more effectively. So out of tomorrow, um, we, we, have, we will invite Mr Greco to attend. I'm yet to speak to him today and see if he will speak to his motion. And I'm told that a number of Darabin executives and Darabin councils will also attend. So I suppose the outcome we'd like is to um, keep the strong message to councillors that this policy ought to be stopped, taken off the table and start again with candid and transparent consultation. Alistair, thank you very much for giving us some insight into um, Neighbours Against the Darabin Parking Strategy. And, uh, yeah, I'll follow up with you guys in the next couple of weeks or so because I know it is an issue that's going to affect a lot of people. Tripping, I appreciate you helping us get our message out there. You have a great day. Thank you. Bye now. And that was Alistair Baston. Um, we do affect change. Obviously, we had the um, high school for Coburg, we had the high school for Preston, which have been quite successful. Yeah, very you? activist community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's great to see. It's yeah. great to hear. Yeah, and I think Alistair was right. Like, it brings people together, and as you said, he's met so many people that he yes. didn't know in his own neighbourhood, and they're all coming together to 
to be active mm. and that's yeah. really mm. nice so coming up next we'll be speaking with Zora Simic but before that we've got Sister Girl by Uitha Sister Girl, so good, celebrating black women and celebrating women. Yeah. Now on the line is Dr. Zora Simic, a senior lecturer in history, women's and gender studies at the University of New South Wales. And she's published widely on past and present feminism. So I think just the perfect person to review a new book that's come out this year, Hashtag Me Too, Stories from the Australian Movement. And she did that review for the Australian Book Review. So welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Sora. Thank you. It's lovely to have you. And getting up early, we always really appreciate this. So uh, <laughs> special thanks. And you're in Sydney, am I right? You're right, absolutely. Yeah. So for people who haven't read the book, um, can you just tell us a little bit about the background, or not about the background, sorry, about the book itself? I have a copy here in the studio, which I've been, you know, holding up all of Philip Adams to everyone to look at. Um, but yeah, <laughs> can you tell me a bit about the book itself? Well, it's a, an anthology is probably the best way to describe it, and it's got... Uh, it's really rich. It's full of different genres of, of writing, fiction, personal essays, poetry. There's even a bit of a graphic novel in there as well. Uh, so it's very diverse in both content, uh, representation. It's, yeah, it's just sort of overflowed with different perspectives. It looked, I mean, I, I bought it on the weekend and have delved in a little bit, and it seems to me that's one of those books you can just open up at any place and read read something, and then you might, you know, put it down, then pick it up, and then read another story. It's, a, it's, it's not one you necessarily sit down and read beginning to end. No, absolutely not. I mean, I felt compelled to because <laughs> I yes, was reviewing it. But, but since then, I've had it just sitting on my kitchen table, and people are very drawn to it. It has a very striking cover. They pick it up. Uh, and started all different sorts of places. So absolutely, I think it's intended to be read in that in that kind of way. Yeah, and in your review, you describe the book as both deeply personal and profoundly structural. Can you say more about that? Uh, I think it, with that comment, I'm, I'm talking generally about the phenomenon that is Me Too. So I see. Yes. Me Too, what, what, what is it? And uh, I think the, the essays and the different writing in the book is coming to terms with that question. So it, it's such a big thing, but it is, it's about relations between the genders or within the genders. Um, it's about institutions, but it's also about personal intimate experiences. So I think that, that the scale of Me Too uh, can be approached from so many different directions and analysed accordingly. Yes. I'm wondering how you felt when you were reading it. How did I feel? I think it was constantly changing depending on what I read. Yeah. Um, and one thing I think uh, that I was really struck by with the book, I, di I don't know if I was expecting anything in particular, but I was really struck by the diverse responses to this topic of Me Too. I, I think as I say in the review, some of the most powerful essays to me were those that didn't even mention the term. 
And I think what was so powerful about them is that they remind us that a lot of those issues that come under the banner of Me Too, you know, sexual harassment, abuse, uh, you know, power discrepancies, all of these things have been going on for a lot longer than the public visibility of Me Too. So the different ways that you can interpret these was, were what really struck me about reading this book. Yes. And, and, I and ha- mm-hmm. yeah. Go on. Go on. Yes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, well, so, I mean, I think I was going to say that kind of leads into my next question. As a person who studies past and present feminisms, I mean, where, do, where does this book fit? Oh, I think it fits... Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, I think there's been a lot, particularly since second wave feminism in the 1970s, I think there's been a lot of, sort of personal testimony uh, about these sorts of issues. So it definitely fits into that tradition. But I think it's also very much a contemporary text in that I think its outlook is very intersectional. I think the editors have gone to a, to a you know, uh, made real effort to make sure that the people that, that have contributed to the book come from, you know, diverse ethnic racial backgrounds, um, gender identities even. So I think that, that, that without labouring the point, without being didactic about it, just to say that this is, this is the world we live in and these are the people within it and here are some of their most eloquent and interesting spokespeople. And and, you, and it is eloquent. I mean, as I said, I've only just bought the book, so I'm, I'm just delved into it a little bit. But the thing that really struck me is, is the honesty of people speaking, and also, you know, the endeavouring in, you know, many cases to balance and and also to point out some of the the tricky circumstances, like the person whose uh, current partner was uh, identified as someone who'd harassed someone in the past. So how you work with that? I mean, it was very gripping. I thought in that way. I absolutely agree. I, I, I actually really regretted that I wasn't able to find time in my review to mention that that particular essay, which was called Me Too and Other Women by Greta Parry, but that was also one that really lingered with me as well. And I, I, I can't believe I hadn't really thought of that perspective, but I thought absolutely the kind of knock-on consequences of Me Too are very wide-ranging, the ripple effect. And I yes. think... That is the benefit of a book like this, is that mm-hmm. often when we read about Me Too in the contemporary media, it's a very quick response to something that's just happened, whereas this is something that people have been able to kind of ruminate about and really think about. This is what the benefit of an anthology like this, is that there has been time to kind of sit with it. Yes, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people too... Ha- have a lot of questions about what's this all meant you know what's it all been about and I think the the book goes away to to answering that question were there any other contributions that stood out for you oh apart from the ones that I mentioned I mentioned quite a few in the uh, in the review that I've written uh, that were really stood out uh, you know uh, particularly how how come you're so sane by Sylvie Leber who I think now is in her you know, 60s or 70s and she's just talked, she was one of the earliest people in Australia to speak out about having been raped. And I, I found that essay really, really you know, powerful. I, th- I think it should be one that wins best essay prizes and anthologised yes. elsewhere. Mm. Uh, also This Place by Eugenia Flynn where she, again, in one of those essays that doesn't mention me too explicitly other than only one time briefly, but really talks about Australia as a sort of white colonial patriarchal society and the consequences of that uh, for Aboriginal women in particular. Um, and also uh, another one that I didn't get to mention but really wanted to was Among Men by Kaya Wilson, uh, which offers a, a kind of trans-masculine perspective on Me Too uh, in terms of 
what it feels like to experience the threat of sexual violence as a cis woman compared to a trans man. I found that a very powerful essay as well. But there are really, really so many. Um, Every single one had something to offer. So I was really, I shouldn't have been surprised, but the consistent high quality of it was really, really impressive. Yes, and you conclude by saying that um, the book, uh, Hashtag Me Too Stories from the Australian Movement, should be essential reading for anyone with an interest in positively transforming our workplaces, our relationships and wider culture. What does the book offer to that project? I think it offers an opportunity to sort of sit back and pause and look at it across a whole range of sites and experiences. I think... Um, understandably, a lot of discussion in Australia has been focused on the legal system and how difficult it is to kind of take Me Too cases or cases of sexual harassment to the courts, um, and that is a very understandable focus. But I think what that has also shown is that that is not always the most fruitful place to look in terms of change. It's, it's going to take a long time to change those kind of institutions that have some deep structural problems. And maybe a better place to start is just in our own selves and in our relationships with others. And I think this book offers, it offers perspectives on, you know, institutions and and so on, but it also offers a whole other range of perspectives that allow us to think about it more broadly, I think. Yes, and more deeply too, I think, as you pointed out earlier, and, and taking the time to do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think... I think anybody sort of working within these spaces will find a lot in there, even that they, they might think, oh, I'm very familiar with these issues. But I also thought I was familiar with a lot of the Me Too issues, but found myself constantly surprised by a new angle well, on the topic. So, well, that's impressive yeah. for someone who reads <laughs> widely in the area. Uh, yeah, so I would highly recommend the book. <laughs> Yeah. Dr. Zora Simic, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Monday Breakfast and, uh, and, and, you know, discussing your review of the book and the ideas that have come out of it for you and potentially all of us. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, it was Dr. Zora Simic. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've got the book. And I'm going to buy the book. Good. <laughs> well, yes. And, and she mentioned there towards the end how she talked about, you know, that, that understanding of Me Too and how we think it is, but then there are so many layers of it. That's right, um, exactly. You know, going into the justice system and going into the courts. And uh, yesterday I did hear that the lawyer for the um, uh, sexual abuse cases within the within religion, within the churches, is playing hardball. Yes, you know? I saw so that. I saw that like, too. How, how more, mm. much more difficult can you make it for these people yes. who have suffered? And, yeah. you know, it's interesting about how things resonate. So, so, you know, I knew I was doing that interview, and um, I occasionally check what's going on in the New Yorker, and there was a whole article about Me Too, Me Too campaign, and how it's been reflected in television. Yeah. In, yeah. in the U.S., in a lot of television shows, how they've changed and how they're revising, you know, some of the female characters in, in old stuff that's bringing, being brought back. So I think, you know, we, we can see it as well, this American movement that's come across and maybe, you know, it doesn't matter that much. But even in America, or, or you know, that, that I think, you know, just people standing up and confessing. But as we've all said, uh, you know, there's way more to it than that. And it really has caused in the States a, a big rethink and, yeah. and timely, I think as well, much needed. And I think it's 
really interesting from the viewpoint of the women who are on the the other side of the guy or the person who's been accused. Yeah, of, that's quite, that was quite a story. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Really, I mean, you mean the wife or the partner? Yeah, of, the wife yeah. or the partner of the person yeah, who is accused. the person you love being... Uh, I mean, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, I'm not saying that that's... Um, of course, that should happen if someone has hmm. done abusive things. Yes. Yeah, but then how does it feel if you're in a relationship yeah. with the this emotions person? that that yeah. person mm. who mm. is in the relationship yeah. is feeling and is and what they're yeah. going through? Well, uh, Jeffrey Rush has just had that situation recently yeah. Yeah. where he's gone to court and sued. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. So so people respond in lots of different, different ways. ways. In this in this case, uh, the, how they had to work in their relationship to work with it mm. was it's quite, I mean it was deeply mm. personal as she said deeply personal mm. and also political yeah. the Australian book review it's fantastic what oh, yeah. some of their reviewers yeah. do yeah. Um, we forgot to mention we've just it's you know nearly an hour into the show today is the start of Power Radical Radio. Oh, the radio yeah. oh, thought <laughs> starts that. today. Oh, yeah. I know. Happy Radio Yeah, Happy yeah. Radio Thon 3CR. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can call yeah. 9419 So we are the first show broadcasting. Yeah, we're kicking off. Oh. We're kicking yeah, off. Yeah, yeah the whole important. radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 3cr.org.au if you'd like mm. to donate. Yeah, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And um, it's coming up to about 10 to 8. And, uh, yeah, as we said, you're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. And uh, so another thing I did over the last um, week was I had an opportunity to speak to David Loy. And um, David Loy, I think I said earlier, is um, a lecturer professor, retired now, in um, Buddhist and comparative philosophy. He's a Zen teacher, practiced in Japan for many years, prolific writer. And uh, he's just written a, a new book that looks at, um, it's called Ego Dharma, and it looks at the engagement of Buddhism and, um, and the environmental issues uh, that we face. And we began by, he's, he's been also an advocate of socially engaged Buddhism for quite a long time. And uh, I began by kind of asking about the historical Buddha and what you might see in his teachings that would, you know, inform um, a socially engaged Buddhism. Well, for example, his attitude toward women. The situation of women at that time in Vedic India was very patriarchal. There was really no spiritual role for women. But he actually created a sangha, a spiritual community for women. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long in the sense that in most places it sort of died out within a couple centuries. But clearly, he was very aware that women have the same potential to awaken as men do. And another attitude was uh, his understanding of caste. I mean, caste at that time in India was, you know, pretty strong. But when people joined his order, uh, they lost all caste. They weren't even supposed to talk about it. And even high class uh, in origin monks wouldn't be allowed to differentiate when they went on their morning rounds sort of asking for food. They would be asking for food from untouchable households, which would be normally just quite unthinkable for a high caste person. So those early teachings embraced women as equals from what you're saying, and caste just didn't exist, in a sense, in his teachings. That's exactly right. In addition to that, there are actually places in some of those early talks by the Buddha where where he talks about how 
such differentiations of caste are really social constructions. At least that's the term that we would use now. Quite a progressive fellow. But the institution, after he died, basically lost that. Now it sort of faces its greatest challenge ever as it comes not, not just to the West, but to a globalized West. So what does socially engaged Buddhism look like? Historically, the focus of Buddhism has been on our own individual transformation, right? So that's the point, for example, of meditation. There's also an important stream in Eastern Asian Buddhism emphasizing what's called the Bodhisattva path, where you're not just interested in your own awakening, but you're concerned about helping other people as well. The important new development is the realization that it's not just a matter of helping people individually, but there's also social structures, uh, institutions that need to be addressed. For Buddhism, the fundamental problem has always been what's called dukkha, suffering in the broad sense. And historically, the way Buddhism has usually seen it is like our own individual karma, our own individual suffering. But now I think we have a much more awareness of how institutions and social structures sort of cause dukkha. And so part of the response to that is Buddhism is developing in ways that are more aware of it and more responsive to that kind of challenge to the challenges that social structures present. That's right. Yeah. For example, early Buddhism doesn't really look at the world in terms of good and evil in a kind of Judeo-Christian sense. The focus is on delusion versus wisdom or ignorance versus awakening. But the Buddha did talk about what we sometimes call the three roots of evil or the three unwholesome motivations, which in a way amount to a kind of Buddhist analysis of what our problem is. We suffer, we create suffering for ourselves and others when what we do is motivated by these three poisons or three fires called greed, ill will, and delusion. An important realization in the last generation is that, frankly, in the modern world we've institutionalized them. For example, if greed means that you never have enough, well, it seems to me that's a pretty good definition of our economic system. Both consumerism in the sense that somehow in the modern world we're largely conditioned to see the problem of our lives as we don't have enough money, we don't have enough consumer toys, and that you always want more. But also thinking about the economic system generally, the preoccupation with profit, market share, stock prices, and nationally too, right? How preoccupied every government is with its gross national product and making sure that it's growing and growing and growing. But the irony from a Buddhist point of view can be expressed by saying, well, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough, which is the problem with greed. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the advertising, which creates the notion that you're not quite good enough, buy this product. I understand that as connected with another fundamental Buddhist teaching. Buddhism not only talks about suffering in the broad sense, but it also connects it with the delusion that we all have that somehow we're separate from other people, we're separate from the rest of the world. So Buddhism has a lot to say about our interdependence. Because this sense of separation, that there's a me separate from you and my well-being separate from yours, the delusion of separation seems to be connected with a kind of fundamental insecurity, which I think we usually experience as a sense of lack. By lack, I mean the sense that something is wrong, something is missing in my life, I'm not good enough. We all have the sense, but we don't realize everyone else has it as well. The problem occurs in the modern world, of course, where you have a kind of 
consumerist economic system that preys on that, that takes advantage of it, that makes money and grows by constantly persuading us that it's the next thing we buy that's going to make us happy. And if you've just tuned in, you're on 3CR Monday Breakfast, and I'm speaking with David Loy. David is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher. His main research interest is in the dialogue between Buddhism and modernity. His new book is entitled Eco-Dharma, Buddha's Teachings for the Ecological Crisis. Here's David Loy again. The first thing the Eco-Dharma book emphasizes is that despite the fact that climate change is so urgent, nonetheless it's really just the tip of the iceberg. It's part of a much larger ecological breakdown when you consider things like the sixth great extinction event that so many species are going extinct. Thinking too of all the toxins, you know, in the water, in the air, in the earth, in our bodies and so forth. What I really think it points to is frankly a civilization that's lost its way. Certainly that has important implications for the way we understand the kind of social and ecological structures that benefit from the present system. A lot of the basic problem is that the people who benefit most from the present system are the ones who control the present system. They're not really much inclined to make radical changes. I think there's been a real sea change over the last year or so. More and more people are realizing, hey, things are worse than we've realized. Number two, the present political economic system just isn't going to do what's necessary. And so a lot more people are thinking about direct action, nonviolent civil disobedience in response as a way of trying to hold politicians' feet to the fire and make them do what's necessary. And we've certainly been seeing that in Melbourne with um, the Extinction Rebellion demonstration on Friday here. So people are responding Many of us are inspired by the big Extinction Rebellion events in London, and even in Denver, uh, which is near where I'm living, we actually have a small Extinction Rebellion group, and we had a civil disobedience action a couple weeks ago, so I'm inspired by that development. More and more people are realizing that the challenge is going to make us rethink capitalism, rethink the whole kind of economic system that we have, which basically makes money by continuing to exploit the earth. I think Naomi Klein made a really good point here where she said that basically the ecological crisis is arising from a clash between two systems. We have an economic system that has to keep growing if it's not going to collapse, but we also have a biosphere that basically doesn't grow. And when these two come into conflict with each other, that seems to be what we're stuck with now. And as she also pointed out, only one of those two systems can be changed. And it, and it ain't the earth. <laughs> you can't cut a deal with Mother Nature. <laughs> in, instead, we're going to have to learn from Mother Nature. And a lot of it, of course, is realizing that we are part of Mother Nature. You could say the deep roots of the problem are, are based in the fact that we feel separate, and therefore we can treat the rest of the natural world as kind of a, a big convenience store for us to extract whatever we want and dump whatever we want. The fundamental reason why I think that the ecological crisis is also a spiritual crisis is the need for us to realize that we're not a species that's just living on the earth. We are an expression of the earth. Our species is you could say, a kind of experiment of the earth. And we need to realize our non-duality with Mother Earth. It's not just a place where we happen to be living. You know, the earth is our mother. And if we act in ways that make the earth sick, we're going to make ourselves sick. That's what we're starting to realize now. 
And that was David Loy. And I think, yeah, he's right. We are starting to realize that if we make the earth sick, we make ourselves sick. Yeah. And um, he was in, he's been in Melbourne. He's, I think he's in Sydney now. And he was at the um, North Fitzroy Library where he gave a public talk. And he also then had conducted a couple of workshops over that weekend. And uh, he told me that there was a lot of enthusiasm. Certainly the public talk was uh, mm. sold out. Mm. So, so there was a lot of interest. Mm. And he thinks there's a few, you know, a few people that are really interested in getting together around, you know, within the, their Buddhist uh, practice to take more action. Uh, it's been happening. It's not entirely new. Mm. Uh, he also said that the whole notion of eco-dharma is new. And so there's an exploration about that going on. I but really like the link he made between, and he's totally correct, climate, the climate emergency and capitalism hmm. being much of the same. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah those sort of three, um, I guess bits of advice which is really breaking through in institutional structures of economic greed um you know participating in social engagement like the Durban parking thing where you meet your neighbors mm. and committing um oneself to the well-being of others as well you know three yes. simple things which obviously sit in the ecodharma but they're just practices that we should all be doing regardless yeah. of whether Mm-hmm. And will make a difference. And I was thinking as you were doing that interview about the parking, about the ecological aspects of it, mm. and the fact that we do need to be encouraging more and more people to use public transport. But if they're they are not able to because of you know disabilities or whatever, then providing some sort of link between the public transport system and if they need to use cars or or better transport even. With anyway, I I was thinking that this really does need to be thought through uh, more carefully. I do want to attribute that quote that I threw in there. I actually a quote from David Loy's book, Eco-Dharma Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis, the one that says you can't cut a deal with Mother Nature. And that was from um, um, Mohammed Nasheen, I believe it is. And he was the former... Uh, president of the Maldives. So there's lots, he uses lots of, David uses lots of quotes in his books. There's lots of good ones. Mohammed Nasheed, rather. Mohammed Nasheed. Yes. So coming up next... We'll be speaking with Amanda and, um, so, sorry, Amanda Keddy. I'm yeah. <laughs> blank there for a moment. <laughs> Amanda Keddy from um, Deakin University. And uh, she's going to be, she's very concerned about, you know, how we work with, how we support and challenge violence against women. And uh, part of her study is around children, young people and their communities and uh, her research interests are in the broad field of social justice and schooling. But her, it was her article with her colleague, Associate Professor Deb Ollis, and I, I need to mention Deb Ollis because uh, Amanda referred to Deb Ollis quite a bit because Deb Ollis has been working in this area for many years and been uh, developing resources for schools. So they wrote it together. It's called Let, Let's Make It Mandatory to Teach Respectful Relationships in Every Australian School. And we began by speaking about the findings of the latest national community attitudes towards violence against women survey. I think we've got to also, uh, before we acknowledge the concerning findings, is, is to recognise that there's some positive... What were some of the good things? Most Australians have an accurate knowledge of violence against women, so they can identify what constitutes violence against women. They do not endorse this violence. They support gender equality, and they understand that violence against women is more than just physical. Um, so that goes to the sort of accurate knowledge, I guess, of, of what, it, what it is. So that's a good thing. Has that changed over the years the surveys have yes, been conducted? 
yeah, so there's been a, a positive shift, especially between 2013 and, and 2017, there's been that positive shift. So, I mean, that's really heartening. But yes, there are concerning findings as well. So there's an on, ongoing decline in awareness that men are more likely to perpetrate violence than women. There's a concerning proportion of Australians who believe that gender inequality is exaggerated or no longer a problem. So that's two in five Australians. And two in five Australians believe that women make up false reports of sexual assault in order to punish them. What age groups are being canvassed in this survey? The broader cohort is 16 to 65. I see. And they have a report about young people's attitudes, which is 16 to 25, I believe. There wasn't that much of a difference in terms of the trends between the older and the younger group. There were factors that contributed to influencing understandings and attitudes more negatively. So, for example, people aged 65 years and plus Men as a group, um, people in highly male-dominated occupations, people with mainly male friends and people experiencing other forms of disadvantage like low education, being unemployed, living in a disadvantaged areas, they were less positive in terms of their attitudes. So it wasn't as if the younger people had more positive attitudes than the older people, but it was a particular group of people or particular characteristics of groups of people that tended to not be as progressive or enlightened, whatever you'd like to to call it in terms of gender respect. I think one of the things that comes out of that is people are calling for or recommending better education on these issues. And you point out in your paper that Victoria introduced a respectful relationships education in primary and secondary schools in 2016, This is um, a move in the direction people are suggesting is needed. I understand that this program is taking a whole-of-school approach. The whole-school approach supports schools to examine gender in relation to a number of different areas. So, for example, staffing, it, it asks schools to look at, okay, is there a gender disparity in leadership positions or teaching responsibilities or extracurricular activities? So often male teachers might be responsible for discipline or teaching particular subject areas that might be seen as masculine or, you know, they might be the coach of the football team whereas the the women might be doing other sorts of more feminine type activities. So it asks them to look at that division of labour. It asks them to look at school culture. It looks at professional learning. So are teachers provided with adequate support to teach about gendered violence, which is really important because this is a sensitive and kind of it's a contentious area. So there's also a question about whether schools are able to deal with disclosures of violence because often these programs will bring to light disclosures and there's some sensitive ways that schools need to be dealing with that. It looks at teaching and learning, so the curriculum and pedagogy, how does that foster students' critical awareness of gender, power and identity? And the curriculum is really lovely, actually. It doesn't just focus on gender. It focuses on other sorts of social and well-being and personal and moral issues like emotional literacy, personal strengths, positive coping. And that leads into a focus on gender and and identity and, and, and violence. It occurs to me that a child could be learning to understand more about gender issues at school and then when they go home they may hear quite sexist attitudes. I think that sets up um, conflict maybe within the child or 
does the child then say, gee, that's pretty sexist, dad or mum? I mean, are, are parents involved in some way? Yeah, look, that's a, such a good question. Well, that's one of the old school um, a, approach areas, which is community connections. So how are schools working with their broader community, including families, but also broadly, you know, local services, sporting clubs, to challenge rigid gender norms. So that there's an alignment between what's being encouraged in schools and encouraged at home. They do encourage parents to come in, but it's a difficult one because parents are busy as well. And schools are often positioned as the panacea to cure the ills of society when this sort of work requires a much broader social shift, including shifts in parental and family attitudes, boarding clubs, the media, our politicians. It sounds like a very thorough kind of program, a very complex program. It's early days still if it was introduced in 2016. Have you seen any results at this stage? There's an evaluation going on at the moment so that we are waiting on those findings. But there was a pilot study conducted a little while ago by the national organisation Our Watch, Deakin and Swinburne into um, secondary schools implementing this program. This pilot study did detect some really positive results in terms of changing attitudes to be more positive and more gender equitable. So yeah, we, we know that these sorts of programs do work, but we also know that implementing them requires a lot of support and it is quite complex. Yes. But I've seen it work really well. I am wondering what has happened to previous efforts that have been implemented. Yes. In the early 90s, there was some, a lot of energy in this space, a lot of great research a lot of visibility around policy and practice and some important reform in schools. But what it was eventually actually met by anti-feminist backlash and funding cuts and other equity priorities kind of taking over and being seen as more important. The other thing from what you're saying is there are fluctuations, times when um, the political climate dictates yes. particular funding to particular issues. Yes, so much. So what are our chances uh, now? There is a sort of a renewed focus on gender equity in the public and media imagination now, more than perhaps there has been for a long time with Me Too movement and a global kind of focus on, on issues of gender equality. We need to focus on that, that positive energy. And that was Amanda Keddy, Professor of Education at Deakin University. And um, she wrote that p- the paper with the professor, Associate Professor Deb Wallace. Um, let's make it mandatory to teach respectful relationships in every Australian school. And Dean, I think you said, I can't believe it's not. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, um, yeah it's obviously more important to do the NAPLAN tests instead of having a social engagement policy yeah, between well, yes. the sexes and teaching the young yeah. kids respect for women and respect in general. I think. Mm. Yeah, and I can hear where your vote would be going for respect. And uh, mm. I mean, mm. the, the whole NAPLAN phenomenon had a lot of criticism. Yeah. yeah. So now we're going to talk a bit about the protest that I went to on Yay. Saturday. So mm. did you know that it was happening? I didn't, I didn't hear about it. No. no. Yeah, this is something that I came across on Facebook. So I found that Facebook is actually a really good tool if you want to find out a bit more about the protests that are going on. That's how I often um, see what's happening in Melbourne Mm. at the State Library. This one was about, um, it was a protest against the criminalisation of abortion in the US. Yes. So this story has been everywhere at the moment, and rightly so, because we all should be concerned about what's happening in the US. And the people um, protesting at the State Library were standing in solidarity. Um, 
So the states that have, are currently restricting their abortion laws or banning abortions completely include Missouri, Georgia, Louisiana, and then most recently Alabama, which we've, which we've heard about. Um, and there are obviously many different um, crises that happens when when state decides what happens to women's bodies. Yes. Um, and also, it's as the speakers that we'll, we'll listen to, as it's um, evident that it really affects the people who are under the poverty line the most, and it will affect the poorest women in society or the poorest people in yeah, society the people who can't afford to cross who can't borders across to, to get travel. an abortion exactly yeah. Mm. so um yeah it was it was really emotional um and everybody there there was high energy there were lots of passionate people there and we were all marching mm. and another thing that was interesting is that they were speaking about the australian reproductive rights and restrictions that affect people and that was also affecting people in Tasmania, indigenous women, refugees, and actually the laws around the reproductive um, laws in Australia are volatile. So it was very interesting for me to learn a lot more about Australia and then also stand there and show my solidarity with them. So the first voices that we're going to hear now are from Trip Fontaine, who organised the rally. Jenny, an activist and organiser of a group on Facebook um, called Mad Ethin Witches. Can't use that middle word on Monday Breakfast, <laughs> but you can Google it. You'll yeah, find I out. know that website. Actually. Yeah. yeah, and it's a yeah. Yeah, great Facebook group. Mm. And Maddie from the Socialist Alternative and CAF. And one more voice, and then I'm, yeah, one more voice. We, and I didn't catch this person's name, but she's the first person to speak. Um, she grabbed the megaphone and just started speaking to the crowd, and it was, yeah, amazing. So I wanted to capture her voice and put that in there as well. Sorry, just before you start, I just wanted to say, you know, for some people, be warned that um, this story could contain details about a portion that could be triggering for some people. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you for that, Dean. And that's right. And here we go. Most people, many people can't afford that. 
where our rights and our choices are being taken from each side. There are women in the US who have already been charged with murder just for miscarriages. 413 women after Roe v. Wade passed, which means that while abortion was legal, these women were charged with murder. Over 70% of these women were lower class, and over 50% of these women were African Americans. Sexism doesn't exist in a bubble. It is affected by race and class, and we need to acknowledge the intersectionality. Simone de Beauvoir, a French philosopher, said when women are upper class, they feel solidarity with the men of that class, not with working class women. When they are white, they have allegiance with white men, not with women of colour. Women do not fight for other women, and we have seen this time and time again. This issue is not split by gender, but party identification. It is the conservative and the right wing that are taking these rights away. Female senators wrote these laws, and female senators passed these laws. This is a women's issue or a reproductive issue, but it's also a race issue and it's also a class issue. This is a matter of conservative right-wing governments claiming our bodies as property of the state. This is fascist. This is a standard we must fight against. We need to send a loud and clear message to these governments that you do not get to have control over our bodies. You do not get to have power over us. Abortion is a class issue. In both America and here, rich women will always be able to access abortion. Even if it were illegal, rich women will always access abortion. Politicians and the rich will always allow abortions for those they impregnate. It's only the poor women who can't afford to fly interstate or pay private providers who will suffer. If women control their own fertility, this is the main way that women all around the world get louder and stronger and more educated and more powerful how they will care for the children that they do have and that they want to have properly. And conservative forces will do anything to prevent this. Of course, one of the main ways men try to control people with wombs is using reproductive control. This includes limiting or banning abortion as well as limiting contraception and refusing to properly educate women about reproduction. I'm a little bit ashamed here to say that I was raised a Catholic and during my childhood and teenage years I was opposed to abortion because I was brought up to think that way. In my 20s it suddenly hit me that treating women as incubators makes them non-people. As soon as I realised that I knew I would have to help fight for women's rights to have abortions. We fundraised to help poor women in Queensland have terminations. We protested about the closure of public clinics in Tasmania. And most of all, we opposed this disgusting government that's full of religious zealots 
who are trying to take Australia back to the days when we were burned at the stake if we weren't good girls and good women. And we refuse to go silently. When we rebel against oppression, we are rebelling against the system that the far right support. The ruling classes of this system have always utilised control over reproductive health as a tool of oppression. The deeply misogynistic wave of draconian abortion bans sweeping the US that we are protesting today is only one example. There is a painful history of Indigenous women in Australia having to go through forced sterilisation. And the Australian government is still taking Indigenous children away from their families and locking them up in youth detention. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, and that was um, some of the voices from the protest against the criminalisation of abortion at the State Library. Um, we heard Trip Fontaine, who organised the rally, Jenny, an activist and organiser of the group Mad Effin Witches, and Maddie from the Socialist Alternative. Um, so, yes, really powerful voices there. And we're also going to hear now from Shauna, an Irish woman from the union movement who was an activist in their struggle and their Repeal the Eighth campaign. Um, she couldn't afford to fly home um, because, and there's no postal vote in Ireland. So she campaigned from Melbourne and she did what she could and she sent her funds home so that they could um, they could spread the word for it as, as much as they possibly could. And that was a huge event in and Ireland. Huge, yeah. yeah, absolutely mm. huge. And then we also hear Debbie from Radical Women, who is a long campaigner for women's rights and reproductive rights as well. You've heard about the issues in other states in Australia regarding abortion. And in Victoria, as you know, it's considered a model world over for good abortion laws. Well, abortion may be legal here, but legal does not mean accessible. One of the key barriers to abortion here in Victoria is cost. Here in Victoria, even after the Medicare rebate, abortion costs between $470 to $7,700. That is outrageous. In Ireland, we campaigned for free, safe and legal access to abortion and we got free, safe and legal access. Abortion is free, both if you go to the GP or if you go to a hospital. So what is stopping you from doing that here? Neoliberalism and privatisation have decimated the Irish healthcare system. It's atrocious, yet We've got this one procedure where everyone, no matter what their background or what their circumstances are, can receive an abortion for free. We pressured our government and it worked. And you can do the same. Women will decide their fate. Not the church, not the state. Women will decide their fate. Not the church, not the state. 
The events in the United States are showing us now that we have to step up this fight. Today's solidarity with the resistance mounting in the United States is a great start. It's wonderful to see so many people. It's wonderful to see young women stepping up. The far right is globally organized, and we can be sure that the anti-abortion forces here are not only emboldened by the full-scale attacks on abortion rights in the United States, they're collaborating with the perpetrators to escalate their efforts here. No reform is secure. And what abortion rights we've won are very precarious. We have to be ready to defend every win. And the signs of a new battle are standing right in front of us. I use the term reproductive justice because abortion is just part of a larger fight for women's reproductive freedom. We're holding this rally on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. First Nations women have been denied their reproductive rights for more than 230 years. Through sterilization, the taking of their children, the desecration of their sacred sites, their incarceration, 80% of Aboriginal women in prison are mothers, and their deaths in custody. We remember Ms. Du, Veronica Baxter, Tanya Day, and many more Aboriginal women who have been killed in custody. The denial of Aboriginal women's reproductive rights is deliberate genocide by the state. And those were the voices from Tripp, Jenny, Maddie, Shauna and Debbie at the protest against the criminalisation of abortion in the US on Saturday at the State Library. Yeah, great to hear people getting out. And the point that no reform is secure is really, we continually have to fight to yeah. maintain it. You have to be vigilant. Mm-hmm. We can't just rest. Everywhere yeah. as well. Yeah. You're not, I, I, that's the yes. thing I think sometimes we're, we're really under... Um, a wrong idea if we think that we're safe and that we have reform and that we can we can trust the yeah. place that we're in and mm. yeah it's what's happening in the u.s it's just hits home how quickly things can change and how yeah we really need to just keep on it all the time and it's the politicians and it's a, it was a great sort of follow-up from the interview we had with mary crooks last week you know oh, talking yes. about the yeah. um the launch of the new book about bloody time which is yes. about the menstruation revolution obviously you yeah know, it's good to, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. keep all these things at the forefront yeah. yeah, and me too, and Zora mm. Simic, and you know uh, Amanda Ketty, all the people that we've had <laughs> yeah. on, and we continue to have on. There was a, a woman feminist researcher named Barbara Baird who did her master's thesis back in the 80s, I think, 
uh, on uh, uh, people who'd had abortions or performed them bef- when they were illegal in South Australia. And the title of it was I Had One Too. Mm. And it was an oral history, and it was just amazing. And she spoke to police officers and uh, some nursing people. It was a small uh, group that she spoke to, but it really brought home what happens Mm. when it's not legal. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. it's great, great piece of research. That's been the Monday Breakfast. It sure has. It's been Monday breakfast. Yeah. And it's uh, coming up towards 8.30, not quite there yet. <laughs> but, and I don't know if it's still raining because we haven't been out of the studio no. for an hour and a half. So I'd say, you know, just check whether you need to bring your umbrella or not. Or check out the um, window first before you yeah. step out the door. Yeah. Top of 12. Uh, at 7.20 we had uh, Alistair Baston um, from Neighbours Against Arabin public parking. Um, there's an event at Welcome to Thornbury tomorrow, which is just a meeting for residents of Darabin who want to you know, support their cause regarding the council's plan to have a parking strategy. Yeah, not a parking strategy that, yeah. that's um, been very well thought through by the Sorry, time of it. Price strategy. <laughs> <laughs> price. <laughs> Yeah, and we had Zora um, Simic on, which was uh, great, talking about the the book Me Too, uh, stories from the Australian movement. And uh, then we had David Loy looking at, you know, what Buddhists are thinking about doing, the idea of eco-dharma, exploring that and where that's going to go. I'm sure we're going to hear more about that, actually. And then Amanda Keddy, as we said, on uh, relationships and respectful relationships in schools. And great that you got out to that protest. Yeah, I'm really glad that I went and got to record and hear those speakers. And there were more as well. They just they had the megaphone open at the end, so people just came and told their stories. Uh, Mm. Yeah, women just got up and told about their own stories with abortion, and it was yeah, it was great. Mm. And I'm glad that I got to share it with you. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing it back. And we've got women on the line coming up after this. You See you all. Stay tuned. Yeah. Next Another week. great show about women. <laughs> 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.